Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Who are you going to tell me about today, Karen? Today, we learn about the life of Vice Admiral James Stockdale. He was a spy, and this is his story. Now, sometimes when we think about the word spy, we think a very specific thing. We think James Bond, or we think other of this one of another one of the spies that maybe we've talked about before. But a spy is simply someone who engages in espionage. And espionage includes intelligence gathering, spying, just doing undercover work, cloak and dagger type work, surveillance, things of that nature. And when you look at it that way, there's no doubt that Vice Admiral James Stockdale was definitely a spy. James Bond, which is so perfect, Stockdale, was born on December 23rd, 1923, in Abington, Illinois, son of Mabel Bond and Vernon Stockdale, who was a Midwestern couple of moderate means. He was an only child. He described himself as chubby and short, and a good student, but a kid who had to fight to be on the football team. And this pretty much makes me think of the movie Rudy. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. As a kid, he got knocked down a few times, but he was always scrappy and got himself back up. That's really all you want from one of your kids, isn't it? It is. It is. He had a range of interests, including theater and drama, which was inspired by his mom. Jim planned to be in the Navy at a very young age. His father, Vernon, had served in the Navy during the First World War and believed that the Navy allowed a glimpse into the world that's very difficult for someone to achieve in any other way. Vernon's dream for his son to attend the Naval Academy in Annapolis grew to be Jim's own dream. The first family trip that Jim remembers was a summer trip to Annapolis right before first grade. That dream came true. And Jim graduated from the Naval Academy in 1946. Right after the ceremony, just when the two of them were together, his father encouraged him to continue striving to be his best when he told him, I want you to be the very best man in that hall. Later that year, as a midshipman, Jim met a girl on a blind date. That girl was Sybil Bailey. She was daughter of a Connecticut dairy owner and a graduate of Mount Holyoke. She was teaching at girls' school in Richmond. They took a shine to one another, and they were married one year later. Jim then attended flight training in 1954, where he became a standout student and even an instructor for a little while. Guess who he mentored in that, Karen? Who? Ohio's own John Glenn. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, his career moved him and his growing family, which was now including four boys, west to California. In 1962, he earned his master's degree in international relations and comparative Marxist thought from Stanford. That's a mouthful right there. Yeah, that sounds like an easy one, doesn't it? Right? 
Sybil, despite the fact that she was raising the four boys, while her husband was gone on cruises, sometimes eight months at a time, she received her master's of education from Stanford also shortly before her husband, and she continued to teach full time. During Stockdale's second year at Stanford, he met Professor Rhinelander, Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Professor Rylander taught Philosophy 6, The Problems of Good and Evil. I think that's a class we would enjoy taking, don't you think, Chuck? I think it's a class you could, it would do you some good to take, yeah. <laughs> I, I know you'd get at least 50% of it right, but go ahead. Oh, wow. Well, this meeting proved to be of immense importance to Stockdale. Jim credits Rhinelander as being the one to open his eyes and inspired Stockdale's dedication to a philosophical life. Jim found Stoicism particularly interesting, especially the writings of Epictetus. Yeah, Epictetus was, was interesting. He was a former slave who lived in about 100 AD, and he taught that philosophy is a way of life and not just the theoretical discipline. So to him, all external events are beyond our control, and we should accept dispassionately whatever happens. However, individuals are responsible for their own actions, which they can examine and control through rigorous self-discipline. Right. And this, is, this had such an overwhelming impact on him. Right. And we'll see this as the story plays out here. Right. It was definitely a theme that just followed the whole backbone of his life, of the rest of his life. Well, after obtaining his degree, Jim moved his family to Southern California, where he was to take command of Fighter Squadron 51. And he was going to be flying supersonic F-8 cruisers, first near San Diego and then aboard different aircraft carriers in the West Pacific. Now, the F-8 cruisers were a little bit different. The F-8 cruiser was the first carrier-based aircraft to break the speed of sound. You know, they don't have very long runways on the ships. Right. And it was mostly a cannon-armed fighter and was really the last of the classic gunfighter planes. Right, right. Well, three years to the exact day after the Stockdale family drove up to their new home, Jim was shot down and became a prisoner of war. But during those three years prior to this, Jim went on three seven-month cruises off the waters of Vietnam. The first was a surveillance mission off the fighting that was erupting in the South. On the second, he led the first bombing raid against North Vietnam. Now, this was actually the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which sparked the war. Yes, it's, the Vietnam War up until then was basically a civil war, with the South being assisted by the U.S. in the background. Now, the U.S. would run some missions and raids into there, but it was pretty limited until August 4th of 65. Now, the U.S. had two spy ships in the Gulf of Tonkin. They had the Maddox and the Turner Joy, and they were called surveillance ships. And it's really kind of funny because think of a surveillance van. Mm -hmm. They had those welded to the ships. <laughs> and they had all this electronic equipment in it, and they were picking up messages and intercepting messages and relaying them to the South. Mm. Well, that night, the 4th, the Maddox and the Turner Joy reported that they had been ambushed with enemy boats firing 22 torpedoes at them. 
President Johnson ordered airstrikes against North Vietnamese boat bases. He also requested a congressional resolution known as the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which passed unanimously in the House and only had two dissenting votes in the Senate. Whoa, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and this gave him basically unlimited war power in Southeast Asia. The problem was this attack almost certainly did not occur. Instead, it's believed that the crew members of the Maddox mistook their own sonar's pings off the rudder for North Uh. Vietnamese torpedoes. Uh. In the confusion, the Maddox nearly even fired at the Turner Joy. Now, later Stockdale was interviewed and debriefed And he stated not a single pilot reported seeing North Vietnamese boats in the water that night. Yet when U.S. intelligence officials presented this evidence to policymakers, they omitted much of this information. And this is according to NSA documents that were declassified in 2005. So there was a purposeful effort to drive this attack narrative forward. And even Johnson had his doubts. He said those dumb, stupid sailors were just shooting at flying fish. And to give you an idea of where his mind was with Vietnam, he also said to a senator in 1965, a man can fight if he can see daylight down the road somewhere. But there ain't no daylight in Vietnam. Not a bit. Hmm. But even as he was saying that, He committed the first ground troops to Vietnam, initiated a massive bombing campaign. So it got us into a war that we would be into for almost 10 years. 58,000 American soldiers died there, all based off of this. Right, right. It's, It's horrifying, really. Well, in his last mission, Stockdale was flying in almost daily combat missions as the air wing commander of the USS Oriskany. Then, on September 9, 1965, James Stockdale flew at 500 knots right into a flak trap at treetop level, with his A-4 plane on fire and his ability to steer impossible. He chose to eject from the airplane. He landed in a Vietnamese village with a shattered leg, dislocated shoulder, and smashed spinal discs. Although a Vietnamese doctor performed rudimentary care on his leg, it fused together incorrectly, and this affected Stockdale for the remainder of his life. You know, Karen, when you see some of these pilots, they came in like McCain. You know, he was so broken up. Ejecting from a plane... Think about flying at treetop level and ejecting from that plane. Right. That was automatically going to create a certain level of broken bones. They knew that. Yeah, because you don't have much room for your parachutes to even work. Yeah, so you're ejecting. And if you're way up and ejecting, you're going to get pretty banged up when you land. But -hmm. if you're at treetop level, you're almost just getting thrown out of a plane. Right. Right. So it's amazing you even survived that. It is. It is. Well, upon capture, the pilot was housed in the Hoalo prison, better known as the Hanway Hilton. Yeah, there were 15 prison camps in Vietnam, and the prisoners named each one of them. And the main one was the Hanoi Hilton. 
and the nickname started after one of the American prisoners, Lieutenant Commander Robert Shoemaker, saw the Hilton logo on a bucket that they had to use as a toilet. So it was kind of a mocking yes. name. Yes, it was. Right. Now, the worst prison was Alcatraz. It's what they called Alcatraz. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that was more remote, but not far from the Hanoi Hilton. There were 11 prisoners considered the strongest and most dangerous. They were taken there. Now, it wasn't just POWs, American POWs in these camps. The majority of the prisoners were Vietnamese anti-communists. But there were also missionaries, journalists, and people who just found themselves in Vietnam doing business. Right. And there were at least five women that were detained in the camps. And I think only... Right. One of them survived? One. One or two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it was a very, very small amount. Right. Well, the Hanoi Hilton would serve as the captain's hellish home for the next seven and a half years. He was only 41 years old when captured. But Stockdale was the senior military member in the camp. He took his leadership role very seriously. And despite the horrific beatings and interrogations, he worked to develop communication networks and a structure for the prisoners. According to DOD statistics, there were 771 U.S. military personnel that were captured during the war. Of those, 115 died in captivity and 658 were returned to U.S. control. In order to help the prisoners communicate, Stockdale employed a basic tap code that dates all the way back to the Civil War. Do you know much about that one? I do, and it's, it's simple and it's very complicated. Think of a square with five rows, five columns. Okay, I'm going to try. <laughs> I'm going to try. And uh -huh. across row, row one, you have A, B, C, D, E. And it continues to go on. And okay. you, C and K share the same spot. So each letter is represented in a unique position on that square. There are 25 squares. And the first tap would tell you the row. And then the second tap would tell you the column. So, for instance, B, you would have one tap indicating row one, the column, and then two taps indicating the second column. Right. Okay. Now think of the kind of focus and concentration you would have to have to keep this spread. This is just unbelievable right here. Just the focus it would take to do this. Just trying to explain it and then trying right. to explain it to everyone else and then make it like a normal mode of communication is just mind-blowing to even consider right and this was right. the most basic exactly. one they had they got into much more right. complicated stuff well stockdale also came up with other clandestine communication methods such as note writing with rat droppings um i guess that's one of those times where you're thankful for the rats and really i think you would hope for <laughs> bigger rats <laughs> like oh i, I got Maybe a number so. two rat number two rat dropping. oh wow yeah yeah. Nah. Well, they would have the rat droppings on toilet paper and they would make notes on those and then leave them in designated dead drop locations. There was another POW, Commander Jeremiah Denton, who had been a classmate of Stockdale's in the Naval Academy, and he devised a crude sweep code. 
While he was performing his mandatory chores of sweeping the courtyard, he would use the rhythm of his broom to convey messages throughout the whole cell block. He got he became pretty famous later. He did. Stockdale also created a messaging system for prisoners of war to use when they were interrogated in order to prepare the others for what awaited them. And what awaited them was just unbelievably horrific. Stockdale described a tiny portion of a torture session with... Here's what he said. They lock you in leg irons. These have a long bar and are heavy. Two trained torture guards cinch your arms together with rope. One of them climbs onto your back, forcing you into a V shape. He then stands on your back and gets more leverage as he pulls your shoulders together to the point where you think your shoulders are going to touch. Oh, that's how so many of them had their shoulders like wrenched out of their sockets. All the while, you were conscious of the fact that your arms have gone numb. Because of blood loss. Then he takes his heel and pushes your head between your feet. Totally jackknife. Now, that's incredibly painful. It was at this point that many would submit. Right. Well, Jim knew that each prisoner had a different breaking point. So he created a code for prisoner behavior that later became known as unity over self. After three months and many interrogations and beatings, James Stockdale was finally allowed to write to his wife. At times, prisoners were granted certain privileges in order to support propaganda that the POWs were being treated fairly. Not knowing if this would be his only opportunity, he wrote an actual message to his family. Then two months later, he was able to reach out and verbally touch home again. And this time, he utilized the opportunity to communicate some naval intelligence and embed double talk into his letter. When he did this, he had no idea if Sybil would recognize his efforts, and if she did, if she would know what to do with it. Double talk can be simple, pretty simple. But it's kind of deceptively simple, right? Right. It's using words or phrases and giving them different meanings. It's kind of like saying the weather has been warm, which might mean that we are being watched more closely. And sometimes gibberish words are thrown in to signal to the reader that it's code. Or something might be put in that's out of place or something like that. Right. And in Stockdale's instance, he used a um, term from a book. A pretty obscure book. <laughs> that his wife recognized. And right. It, the book described horrific conditions in Russian gulag. Mm-hmm. And he worked that term into the letter and she recognized it right away. And knew that it meant something serious. Yeah, that was pretty well, amazing, I thought. It really was. It was. Now, until the first letter arrived, Sybil didn't know if her husband was dead or alive. And any word from him was just completely cherished. She just, anything just meant so much to her. So when she received the second letter with out-of-place mentions of friends and family, she noted it as strange, but was kind of unsure of what to do. But she knew her husband and how his mind works. And especially when she saw the one reference to the book that she loved. So she took the letter to Naval Intelligence. 
She met with an intelligence officer at the Pentagon twice, and on the second appointment was told if she continued to communicate covertly with her husband, she would be taking his life into her hands. Despite her fears, Sybil decided it was her duty to continue. The collaboration between the couple, naval intelligence, and the CIA lasted throughout the rest of the war. Jim's ingenuity and Sybil's courage kicked off a POW espionage mission that former CIA operations director Robert Wallace called one of the most important operations in CIA history. Now, Sybil's reply was plotted very carefully. The letter included a Polaroid photo that had been created by the CIA. The photo had a covert message sealed in between the layers of the photographic paper. Clues embedded within the accompanying note led Jim to soak the photo in water in order to expose the message. When he did this, Jim felt both excitement and trepidation creep up his spine as he read the enclosed information. The letter informed him that he was reading a message written on invisible carbon paper. Any letters from Sybil dated an odd date would be on this type of paper. The carbon sheet could be reused. Any photo with a rose in it should be soaked. The letter also explained how to utilize the paper to transmit hidden messages back to the U.S. Now, the CIA had done this before, right? It was the Military Intelligence Service X, and it right. originated okay. with MI9. Okay. And it was started by the Americans in World War II to develop communication systems inside German POW camps. This highly classified intelligence operation helped hundreds of U.S. POWs escape during that war. And it became so successful in getting contraband to U.S. prisoners in German camps that at one point the prisoners had to ask them to stop because they had run out of hiding places for the contraband. Wow. Yeah, it was restarted under the Technical Service Division of the CIA for Vietnam. That's a pretty bland name, the Technical Services Division. I mean, that could that could encompass anything. So that yeah. was a pretty smart name change there. They did some amazing things, and we're going to yeah. hear more about what they did later on. And you need to pay attention because there's a quiz at the end. Or not. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Jim's first one-page letter to Sybil, utilizing the carbon paper, was dated January 2nd, 1967. The letter named more than 40 POWs being held captive. Coded within the note were the words, experts in torture, hand and leg iron 16 hours a day. A second letter quickly followed the first, which is amazing. The new letter updated prisoner names and numbers, emphasized the necessity of targeting Hanoi's propaganda radio station and the North-South Rail Line for airstrikes. Stockdale also detailed the nature of the questioning during interrogations. Remember, families were not privy to the details of their loved one's situation, but because Sybil was a go-between, she was. And this was actually very devastating for her. The first letter that described the torture that Jim was forced to endure, that one was especially heartbreaking. But these invisible carbon messages were critically important because they helped identify POWs and where they were being housed. And this intelligence was crucial to planning escape missions. 
They also gave the prisoner of war's family members answers to their very desperate questions because most of them had no idea what was going on. Even when the information was tragic, it could give a loved one closure. But there were also some serious problems in this mode of intelligence relay. During the earliest years of the war, there were very few opportunities for sending and receiving mail. The pace of letter exchanges was wholly dependent on North Vietnam's leadership and that leadership's tolerance towards allowing religious or anti-war delegations to visit and serve as mail couriers. Because of the inconsistencies, a letter could take months or even years to be exchanged. But by a stroke of luck or something greater, Sybil received Jim's reply letter in over a week, which was just truly unheard of. It was amazing. Another issue was that prisoners were always in flux. They were often moved from camp to camp without notice, and if a prisoner was found guilty of espionage, they could face extreme punishment, including execution. It was simply impossible to maintain any information relay routines. One time, Stockdale had to eat his last bit of carbon paper because of a sudden inspection. With his ability to relay information gone, Stockdale was forced to return to double talk, which was a much more mentally fatiguing process than just straight conveying the information out on the invisible carbon paper. Yeah, I did not mention before that, of course, they were going to read your mail when you sent it out. So you couldn't just write. You had to be very, very subtle in your double talk with these letters. So it was very mentally fatiguing. Yes. Stockdale and his fellow prisoners of war were not well educated in the advanced methods of encryption, but Stockdale was transferred to a different camp where he met a man who taught him various forms of encryption and code. But unfortunately, the camp he was moved to was the section the prisoners called Alcatraz. Like Chuck mentioned before, Alcatraz housed 11 of the prisoners that were considered to be the biggest troublemakers by their captors. When Stockdale learned that another Alcatraz member had been trained in advanced cryptology, when he wasn't in leg irons, he used his crude tap code to have the cryptologist teach him more advanced code. Now, both men were confined by leg irons, but if one extended their foot, the other could see their big toe. Stockdale was taught advanced code through painstakingly careful Morse code movement of the big toe. Can you believe that? Think this through. I'm just trying to think of sitting in a classroom with my tablet or book or notebook or whatever and having someone teach me, speak to me and teach me this advanced code. Mm -hmm. He was picking it up through Morse code from, from someone's toe. toes. I mean, this is truly amazing stuff that these guys did. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I really. mean, the, the kind of mental acuity you had to have. Right. And That's- they were not in ideal situations. They were not in classrooms. They had their no. legs shackled and they were in cages. Incredible pain, both yeah. incredible um, physical pain, mental pain. I mean, yeah. worried I mean, about it's their just families. amazing that. Right what these guys accomplished it it really is and not only did stockdale learn the code the entire alcatraz group all memorized the code this way and like stockdale they used it to relay intelligence back home through their letters finally 10 of the prisoners held at alcatraz were released back 
to Hoalo. One of the brave, incredible men enduring the inhumane conditions of Alcatraz did not make it back. After years of solitary confinement, leg irons, gruesome beatings, and ruthless mental manipulation, Captain Ronald Storrs finally found ultimate freedom. He was remembered by Stockdale and the other prisoners as the hero we left behind. For Stockdale and many of the others, the late 1960s were the most difficult years of captivity. Many prisoners contemplated suicide. Stockdale himself tried to take his own life rather than to capitulate to his captors' demands. When Stockdale was told he was to be taken downtown and paraded in front of foreign journalists, Stockdale took a razor and crudely shaved his head, scarring and disfiguring himself. Then he took a wooden stool and beat himself in the face. He knew that his captors would not display a prisoner who was disfigured. This is where Denton comes in. Denton actually was used as one of those in one of those propaganda films. Right, but not really. But as he was speaking, he was blinking and he was using right. Morse code to blink torture. Right. So, so uh, as he was saying that he hadn't been tortured, he was giving the message that he had been with his eyes. Right. Basically, he was saying he was a war criminal. They were treating us very well, whatever. Right. And with his eyes, he was blinking torture. And that was right. the and that's first why it's so that important got. that we don't jump to conclusions when we see things like this on TV, because a lot of people were calling him a traitor and things like that before they knew the whole story. And a lot of this was classified for a long time, I believe. It wasn't even the, even then, though, a lot of these guys felt deep, deep shame. I mean, right. McCain mm-hmm. said that he always did for the film that he made. Denton did. And you think about it, and they endured this torture and everything else, and they felt ashamed for doing that. And you think, well, why? Because the other prisoners didn't look down on him for it. Right. No, Stockdale especially understood that every man had a different breaking point. But I think because he was kind of the head of a lot of the espionage that they were putting together, and and he had put together this code of behavior to act on, I think he felt that it was necessary, especially for him to not ever do one, just to give them something to hope that they could achieve. And really that the stoicism, that's where this all comes into right, play. Right. It's his the self-discipline the and everything that he believed. That's right. where it came into play there. Exactly. Well, after discovering that some prisoners had died during torture, Stockdale slashed his own wrists in order to demonstrate to his captors that he preferred death to submission. In 1970, there were several factors that led to the gradual improvement of most POWs. In late 69, a lot of things happened. One, at that camp, Stockdale's suicide attempt had an influence because Stockdale, he did not look at them as hating him or him hating them. He thought it was just part of a game. Right. Well, he understood how their minds worked, too, because of his Marxist theory, learning so much about that. He, He understood their belief system and their structure. Right. And he would often argue with them about what Marx believed in communism and things like that and go over points that they got wrong. Mm -hmm. But his suicide attempt showed that he was willing to go as far as possible. And it it kind of 
deflated the leaders of the camp a little bit. Mm -hmm. Then you had Nixon going public with how they were being treated in the camps. You had the death of Ho Chi Minh. And then you had the Vietnamese Politburo's resolution. In 1969, the Nixon administration initiated a massive PR campaign to demand that the North Vietnamese adhere to the terms of the Geneva Convention. Then on August 5th, 1969, North Vietnam released three American POWs as a goodwill gesture to a visiting delegation of American anti-war activists. On September 2nd, about a month later, the U.S. Defense Department held a press conference in which two of these prisoners provided very detailed descriptions of the torture they and their fellow American prisoners had been subject to. Now, this press conference was held purely by chance on the same day that Ho Chi Minh died, and it caused an immediate firestorm of publicity both in the U.S. and around the world. And then you had the Vietnamese Communist Party Politburo, itself discussing the issue of the treatment of American POWs in the fall of 1969. So they issued a special resolution providing detailed instructions for improving the treatment of American prisoners. A lot of that included um, mail, mail issues. Prior to those changes, care packages were almost never allowed into the camp. But now there was a consistent flow of mail and packages that made it to the camps and into the prisoners' hands. The CIA seized this opportunity and they began slipping desperately needed tools and information into these care packages. That's kind of like a program we discussed earlier. One of the most useful tools were microdots. And these things were pretty amazing. They now, were. you being a photographer, you you know about microdots. A little bit. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell our listeners. It's a photograph that's so small that an entire document can be reduced to the size of a punctuation mark in a newspaper. So think of a period in a newspaper. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. And it was originally developed as a parlor trick, kind of a gimmick. But they became essential tools of the spy trade. Nazi spies were the first to use them extensively. And being unfamiliar with the technology, American counteragents took nearly two years to decode them. J. Edgar Hoover called them the enemy's masterpiece of espionage. And because they were so small, these tiny images could be hidden in almost anything. Right. For the Vietnam War, microdots were mixed into packages of Kool-Aid that were sent to POWs. Think about how small that had to be. It's amazing. Microfilm was hidden in a can of Spam, and radio components were smuggled in tubes of toothpaste. Now, although resources became more plentiful, risk was definitely elevated. The radio, for example, its components so tediously gathered was one step away from being completely assembled when it was discovered during a random inspection. So it was one step forward and three steps back. But at least for the first time, there were steps forward. Then Stockdale provided the U.S. with intelligence that changed everything. Yeah, we're jumping ahead now to December of 1973. And the peace talks are stalled, but we still have constant American casualties. The anti-war sentiment is just 
growing and growing and growing here. And the North Vietnamese had stepped away from the table. And Nixon had to do something. So what he decided to do was step up the bombing of Hanoi in an effort to get the North Vietnamese back to the table. And think about this number. The Americans dropped 20,000 tons of bombs using B-52s. And that was kind of unusual because Mm -hmm. typically they used fighter jets and they would just... They would just drop a few bombs, but the B-52s could just carpet bomb. And it was, it obviously did tons of damage. Well, the North Vietnamese claimed that American POWs were being killed in the bombings, but Stockdale was able to get a message back that none of the POWs were hurt, which caused Nixon to not worry about the bombings and escalate them and continue them. And they finally ended around Christmas, I think. Of A few weeks later, the negotiators signed the Paris Peace Accords, and that brought the U.S. participation in the conflict to a virtual close. That's right. So, on February 12th, 1973, Captain James Bond Stockdale, who had spent seven years and five months of his life which was a total of 2,713 days and 65,112 relentless hours as a prisoner of war. This man finally pressed his feet into home soil. Sybil and the kids greeted him on the tarmac. When Jim Stockdale first deployed to his mission, he had four little boys. Now, He was being greeted home by four young men. Due to the severity of the injuries he sustained at Hanoi, Stockdale was unable to stand upright and he could barely walk, so there was no way he could return to active flying status. But of course, the Navy kept him on duty in other positions, promoting him over the next few years until he retired in 1979 as Vice Admiral. On March 4th, 1976, Stockdale received the Medal of Honor. After retirement, Jim took a position as president of the Citadel, but he found himself at odds with the board and the administration over several different issues, one being the school's hazing culture, and he ended up leaving within the year. When he explained his decision, he said, when you've been tortured by professionals, you do not have to put up with amateurs. And it's really interesting to me how his view and McCain's view on torture, on torture were. Right. I mean, the guys that endured it, right? Because they seen that while it was horrific, it really didn't get you anything, right? And I mean, they just knew that there's a greater, like that the whole greater good idea just was a load of crap. <laughs> like they knew it, right. they've seen it. So in 1981. He became a fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where he spent time writing and lecturing, mostly on stoicism and philosophy as an aspect of leadership. Between 1981 and 1988, Admiral Stockdale served as chair under the Reagan administration. He was also a member of the board of directors of the Rockford Institute and the author of several books. 
1985, Vice Admiral Stockdale and Sybil collaborated to write a book titled In Love and War, the story of a family's ordeal and sacrifice during the Vietnam War. While it recounted the Admiral's appalling experiences, it also told the story of what Sybil and the boys endured during her husband's absence. The book also chronicled Sybil's inspiring work in creating the League of American Families of Prisoners of War and Those That Are Missing in Action. The couple's story was also developed into a movie titled In Love and War, which starred James Woods and Jane Alexander. In the early 1990s, Stockdale met businessman Ross Perot through Sybil's work. In 1992, Perot asked Jim to serve as a provisional vice president nominee for the Reform Party during Perot's independent bid for president, so he basically wanted Jim to just stand in. Stockdale accepted, although later he wished he hadn't because the experience turned out to be just absolutely horrible. Jim found out he was to attend a formal televised vice presidential debate a week before he was to be there, but he was not given any debate prep. At that point, he'd also not had an opportunity to discuss detailed policy with Perot. Stockdale didn't anticipate a problem. After all, he was a man who endured the worst of the worst, so this shouldn't be anything, but the debate was unfamiliar territory for him. He was used to public speaking, but on his own terms and not in rapid-fire soundbite form, and he was debating two people who were very well-versed in this particular format. Stockdale opened with rhetorical questions. Who am I? Why am I here? His goal was to discuss how Stoicism shaped his policy beliefs, but he never had the opportunity to flesh out his thoughts. That, combined with being thrown off kilter by hearing aid malfunction, made him appear disoriented. Stockdale's presence at the debate became fodder for comedians. Phil Hartman portrayed an exaggerated character of his debate on Saturday Night Live, which cemented the reputation that America was getting of a lazy-minded old coot rather than a former American prisoner of war who suffered through agonizing torture for seven years and created and maintained one of the most important espionage missions ever. This great, great man was reduced to a laughingstock by the country he had so valiantly served. And part of that, Karen, was that he was on a time limit. So when he right. started out with, who am I, why am I here? And so you said that he couldn't flesh it out, but that was really the big problem is that he knew what he was going to say and then he they cut him off on time and it just sounded like he was rambling yeah he didn't know how to do it in this soundbite form that the other two were so well versed in well this it's really funny because he had to be the smartest guy on that oh my goodness yes well this was incredibly difficult and very very frustrating for stockdale but despite the problems he and perot managed to garner 19 percent of the 1992 vote which is the best showing by an independent ticket in electoral history When asked about it, Stockdale replied, It was like I was a college football player that somebody decided ought to go into boxing, and a week later I was in the ring with Joe Lewis. You know, here's my question to you, Karen. Okay. Now, we watched a couple documentaries on him. We researched. Three times I heard people say about him 
that he was the greatest leader of men they'd ever met. And these were POWs and high-ranking Navy officers. So how do you think, do you think that would have translated well into a presidency? Or do you think he would have had problems with dealing with Congress who did not have the same honor codes, the same sense of duty, things like that? My opinion is he would have had a very difficult time getting elected. I don't think he had the charisma that a lot of the public look for with the president. However, I think if he had gotten elected president, he would have been an excellent one because he wasn't a man who was driven only by military code. He was also a philosopher. And I think the combination of those two things would have actually led him to be an incredible, incredible leader. I think the only thing that would have been a problem at that point, it is possible that the he had Alzheimer's later, and it is possible that that was already starting to show up at this time. But that would be the only thing that I, that would have been in question for me. I think other than that, he would have made an incredible leader in that regard. Fair enough. Fair enough. What do you think, Chuck? Well, I, what I think, I, I read a story, and, and I have part of it here, in 2000. McCain was running against Bush and he was beaten. He was beaten by the time he got to California. Right. And that was so, the, the year that it really looked like he was going to do well. I mean, that was his whole straight talk express year right. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. But it was pretty clear that Bush was going to win it. Right. But he was kind of running out the string and he got to San Diego. Mm -hmm. And with him was Admiral Stockdale. And, you know, somehow Stockdale had ended up this running mate and Perot was flighty and vindictive. Right. And he had been kind of disrespectful to Stockdale right. and, and really sidelined him from the campaign. Right. Kept him from being able to do what he needed to do to show who he was. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But now think of who McCain was. McCain was, a, a, whether you're a Republican or Democrat or what, he was a great man. Right. And respected was. by so many people. <laughs> right. So in his remarks, now, remember, he's giving, he's trying to make a pitch for I should be president, right? Mm -hmm. But in his remarks, he turned to Stockdale and said, no matter what, you will be my commander forever. Wow. Now, that kind of means something. It does. I mean, when it, it someone just, who's trying to be leader of the free world tells someone, you will be my leader, that tells you something pretty big. Right. So that that's, I, I think that he would have been able to transcend it. I do too. And I think that kind of shows the problem with our political system. Right. Is great men can often not transcend the soundbite thing. Right. No, that we fall into. Right. We talk a little bit about that on our other podcast also so if you ever want to hear us talk about that we do have another political podcast called context and clarity you should check that out but jim stockdale eventually retired from public life and he retreated to coronado california he passed from this life at 81 years of age on july 5th 2005 due to complications from alzheimer's his funeral was held at the place he and his father held so dear the Naval Academy Chapel, and he was laid to rest in the United States Naval Academy Cemetery. Sybil joined her husband in 2015. Uh, 
I'm starting to get emotional. <laughs> Vice Admiral James Stockdale was a man who saw the importance of enduring hardship as an opportunity to respond with virtue rather than thinking of freedom and happiness as getting whatever we want. He believed what Epictetus said. Don't ask things to happen as you wish, but wish them to happen as they do happen and your life can go smoothly. He was a man who experienced both good and evil in their most raw forms, and he came out of it, quoting Solzheinstein. It was only when I lay there on the rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to be that line, the line separating good and evil that passes, not between states nor political parties, but right through every human heart, through all human hearts. Jim Stockdale was a man self-aware enough to acknowledge the magnitude of his feats, but humble enough to keep his medal of honor and his dresser drawer. He was a man many of his fellow prisoners called the bravest man they ever met. Stockdale ended many of his speeches by recounting a pivotal moment for him during his time at Hanoi, a moment that summed up his life in just a few sentences. He had been in isolation in a dark cell for four years and was at the point of just complete brokenness when finally he was moved back to Hanoi with the other prisoners. One of his fellows realized he was back and sent a signal for him by moving a rusty hanger to the north in the washroom. Stockdale knew that that meant that there was a note for him in the bottle under the sink, so he quickly retrieved it and hid it in his clothes. After returning to his cell, he sat on his toilet bucket where he could hide the note quickly if the peephole cover moved, and he slowly unfolded the scrap of low-grade toilet paper, which only had the following words from Henley's Invictus scrawled with rat droppings. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Vice Admiral James Bond Stockdale was a son, a shipman, a pilot, a husband, a father, a student, a philosopher, a mentor, a captain, a captive, an educator, an encourager, a leader, and he was a spy. If you like the show and would like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. You can become a Patreon supporter. You can find us at Patreon under Spy Stories. You can tell your friends about our show. You can share our episodes. You can leave us positive reviews on iTunes. We have a Facebook group, Spy Stories Podcast. The life of Vice Admiral Stockdale reminds us that we walk among giants. We walk among people who accomplish truly incredible things, but we must take our eyes off our own concerns and our own self-involvement in order to see them. James Bond Stockdale knew better than most that like Harriet the Spy says, life 
is hard, but a good spy gets in there and fights. And until next week, keep fighting. Thank <laughs> you.